Welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Welcome to part two of my conversation with Irina. I'll let her introduce herself here. My name is Irina Szklowski. I'm at the University of Copenhagen, Department of Computer Science, and a little bit in the Department of Communication. I'm a 20% guest appointment at Linköping University in the Gender Studies Department. And if you try to do everything, you will break. And as she shared so powerfully in part one, she did break because she did try to do everything and she burnt out. We continue here in part two, where she talks about getting professional help and how she's trying to practically manage her return to work. A key thread is about becoming much more self-aware and that self-aware about paying attention to her own body and what it's telling her, and also about becoming more aware about how much time work actually takes by tracking it and becoming more aware of uh, what she can actually do realistically. And she talks in this about learning to be enough and do enough by taking time to reflect on what's important, about saying yes and no more strategically, and in particular, making sure she says yes to her own needs for everyone's benefits. As she says in her own words. It's a balance and a dance of trying to figure out what commitments I can manage and what commitments I believe are important and for what and a constant fairly strong awareness you can't do everything. We'll go on here now with part two and let Arena tell her own story a story that we recorded back in June when we were both at a conference in Trondheim, Norway and we'll pick up here a little bit back from where we left off in part one, just for context. I realized I needed to pay attention. Uh-huh. But until I went on sick leave and actually really paid attention, I really began to pay attention to what was going on with me. And I realized I hadn't paid attention to me for quite a long time. It's easy to ignore. And then I started noticing when I was coming back, I I was off for about a month and a half and then I started coming back and everybody was like, don't come back too fast, come back slowly. Mm. I could tell when I was going too fast, I would suddenly get sick, I would suddenly get these random inflammations, I suddenly, my body would just push me back. But because I was cautious, I started noticing that. Mm -hmm. And I've learned. I've learned to pay attention. Mm. I've learned to be okay with being like, okay, I can't say yes to things now. And I've also learned to try and plan a little bit for 
times when I know that the pressure and the level of demands is going to be high. Mm -hmm. Um, but I still struggle with making sure I don't overdo things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The past me always thought that something that I'm signed up for is going to be a good idea. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the current me is not quite so sure most of the time. You talked about you you try to plan now. Like one of the things you've learned is to recognise when they're maybe coming up periods of increased pressure and planning more. What might that look like practically? So right now I'm looking at my fall and I'm very clear on the fact that it's going to be very tough. Mm -hmm. Because again, the past me did not plan very well. And the current me is very aware that suddenly everything is happening this fall. Um, and I'm a little bit intimidated, so now suddenly I'm like, okay, I'm starting a new course, which means I have to actually have most of the course designed and prepared, and I need to get that done before July. That is extremely advanced. We, we are talking early June here. So. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's extremely advanced for you to even be in thinking about that. But it's because I know that if I can get it done before July, or sort of, that means that I will be able to deal with the fact that I have Nankai Papers Chair this fall, I have three students that want to write papers for Kai this fall, and I'm starting my 20% position with Lynn Sherping in September. So, all of that will need to happen all at the same time. Mm -hmm. So something needs to be done now. Some things really need to be done and figured out now. Otherwise... You said before about learning to, that you can't say yes to everything, and then you also talked about your past you and your current you. So, even in saying yes to the Lingshaping and some of the big fall commitments? I, you know, it's always a balance. There's certain things you want to do and opportunities come along and you've wanted to do them, so you say yes. And then other opportunities come along and they just kind of have to happen at the same time. And eventually you just kind of find yourself in the situation. And so right now I am extremely aware that I will be at my limit this fall. Mm. But it also means that my answer to everything right now is no. From paper reviewing committee com commitments to um, PhD dissertation examinations to everything else. Mm -hmm. It's just a no. And it's a no that is entirely um, entirely qualified and entirely justified in my mind, but it also is for the first time I am feeling like it's a no that I do with complete lack of guilt. It's interesting that they can, that there is guilt associated with no's. Always. I think there's partly guilt because when people ask, uh, you want to help? 
And there is partly a feeling of, or a fear of missing out, a fear of maybe this opportunity will turn into something and you would miss mm. that if you said yes. But it's also, I think our no's are, we don't appreciate when other people say no to us. And so when we say no to others, mm. it is certainly a similar kind of experience. Because you're aware of the human cost of that no for the other person. Absolutely. Mm. And that's always a trade-off. I think no's are ways of us protecting ourselves. But it's also a social cost that you have to bear. Yeah. And it's a set of choices that we make. And sometimes I think, I wonder if I'm making the right choice. If I said the right yeses and, and, and the right noes. And you never know, really. I was just going to ask you, do, are you getting any sense of the criteria at all? No. But at least now I have an extremely strong sense of where my limits might be. Mm-hmm. And I know, I know, I push them all the time. But I try very hard not to push them too far out of shape. Mm. And I think that's also a process and a learning experience. It sounds like you're doing a dance with your body. Yeah. <laughs> How are we going? <laughs> Can we just do this a little bit more? There's another way of framing the no's, which is the saying the yeses, like in saying no to that, what are you saying yes to? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, but that's, again, there's always a trade-off of how do you know which yeses and no's are the right ones? Mm. And that's anybody's guess most of the time. Mm. But I guess I always said that I, I, I always known that I needed to be more strategic. Never quite figured out what that what means. means. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> Sounds really good. I needed to be more thoughtful about what are my goals. But then sometimes that feels incredibly selfish. And so it's a balance and a dance of trying to figure out what commitments I can manage and what commitments I believe are important and for what. And a constant fairly strong awareness of, like there are certain things you can't do everything you can't do everything and so you have to make some commitments and give up some others and that's okay and it's worthwhile spending some time thinking about that because if you try to do everything if you try to sh- lift everything if you try to carry everything you will break yeah and it is not pretty yeah, and you will drop everything. And you will drop everything. Yeah. And I was extremely lucky. I was so extremely lucky that I was surrounded by people who caught me. Who caught things that I dropped. And it was okay. Mm-hmm. Not everything was okay. Certain things would have gone better if I was no. there. Yeah. But that's just how it is. But have they still gone good enough but they're okay they're okay and I realized that 
I was in a position where I could do that, and I'm extremely lucky that that happened. But also, I put myself in that position. I put myself in the position where I broke. And I put myself in that position because I didn't pay attention to me, mm-hmm. to the signals from mm-hmm. my brain and my body. Because I always felt that there was this one other thing I just needed to finish. Mm-hmm. And then it will. And then it and will. Then it and will. then it will. Mm-hmm. And so now I try extremely hard be like, okay, you know what? I promised that I would do this and this and this. And now I see that right now I could try to do this, but I'm extremely tired and it's late. And actually, it'll be okay if I close my laptop right now and not think about work mm. until tomorrow. Mm. And to recognize that that's perfectly fine. And to recognize that I can come back to my colleague and say, you know, I promised you feedback on your on your grant. And I promised to you by today, but I really wasn't able to get to it. When can I get it to you? And if not, I can't. Yeah. Because you can't do it all. Sometimes you can't. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you promise and you realize you mm-hmm. can't. And then it's better to just come back and say, I actually, I'm sorry, I can't do it then try to do it anyway. Yeah. You used the word selfish a couple of times. Do you still think of this as selfish? I used to think of that as selfish a lot more, and now I think it's self-preservation. In the end, if I'm clear about it, mm-hmm. if I'm beyond tired and I'm still trying to do something, it's never going to be good anyway. If I'm working myself to the point where I break, a lot more things will break. So it's just being a little bit more honest about what it is that I'm able, capable of doing yeah. with myself and with others. Yeah. And I, I like from what you said that you just go back and say, like you're, you're still holding yourself accountable to the commitment that you made to them and you're just being honest about where you're at and what you can do. Yeah. Because I think everybody understands that. Mm. And yes, it's disappointing. But bloody hell, we all have limits. Yeah, yeah. Did you seek any professional help at all during this time? Absolutely. So my university also has this insurance policy where when you come into this sort of situation, you call essentially an emergency number and they completely anonymously assign you a therapist to speak to, a workplace therapist. Mm to help you work through what's there and what's needed. And it's completely free and it's completely anonymous and it's kept completely separate from the university. It's just something that the insurance does. That's what I did. And I met a therapist who worked with me just to help me see what what to do and what I needed to do. And who actually helped me get to the point where I just went on sick leave. He helped me realize that that was possible. Right, so you needed you needed that help just to work through because the other half of you is keeping up, but I can't because I've got all these commitments and responsibilities mm-hmm. and three PhD students and, and, and. Yeah, and, and that was extremely helpful. In Denmark too, um, 
I went to my doctor. In order to go officially on, on sick leave, you have to go to your doctor. And my doctor took one look at me and said, yes. <laughs> You'd been to the doctor and the doctor had said... Oh. Yes, you need to go on sick leave. And insisted on it very strongly. And then the activational therapy, you only get so many visits. But in the meantime, I... Uh, my doctor had uh, prescribed regular therapy, um, so I got a regular therapist and finished the occupational therapy and mm -hmm. went to that. Um, and that was extremely helpful to just begin working through recognizing um, just my tendency to ignore myself and Mm -hmm. do all these things and get excited about things and kind of just spread myself too thin and figure out how to cope with that and begin to get some ways of thinking and reflecting that can help. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially doing some exercises of just like, rather than thinking about all these things I want to achieve, paying much more attention to what I actually do and how much of it. Because I find actually a lot of times we always feel like we haven't done enough. Mm -hmm. And it's useful. Like at the end of the week, just looking back and being like, what did I actually do? And it turns out you do a lot. A lot of it isn't something you count as work, but it all kind of counts. Mm. And it takes a while to then figure out, okay, of what you do, what is it that you want to continue? What is important? How do you figure out space and time to do more of one thing and maybe less of the other? Mm -hmm. um, what kinds of commitments got you to something that you weren't happy with and weren't happy to do and what kinds of commitments got you something that was more generative and nourishing and useful and and maybe fun. I think we don't do enough fun. Enough fun. We don't do enough fun. That we sounds, definitely don't. That sounds like something that also needs paying attention to your body. Right. Or how or how do you recognize what are the things that are generative for you? When you look at it, and, you re and, I, and I think for me, I look at it and I decide, okay, what of this is just something that, is that something I'd love to do again? Mm. Is that something that I feel went well? Is that something that I actually enjoy doing? Um, or is that something that's going to lead to something else? And do I want to go there? Sometimes you don't. And some things you just need to give it a chance, right? You're doing something and you start a series of meetings with people and it doesn't really work for a while, maybe you need to give it a chance. Some things... I, uh, I, started, uh, I, I, I started doing these projects with students um, doing ridiculous software, which is a little fun project that I really like. And I love the project, the Ridiculous Software Project, and it attracts... It's called Ridiculous Software Project. Ridiculous Software. Uh, 
in fact, we have a website called ridiculous.software. <laughs> then I also tried to do it with, uh, with master students and they, and they started showing up because they thought it would be fun to do as sort of as a little project. So as part of their master's education. And at first I thought it'd be really fun and I kind of enjoyed them. And then I realized it was a lot of effort, but not a lot of return because they're treating it as something like, oh, we'll just do something ridiculous. Which the whole point is building software that is weird and upsets your expectations of software is supposed to do and um, doing something the opposite. So I had a student that just built um, an extension, a Chrome extension that would attempt to recommend, as you watch YouTube, it'll attempt to recommend you YouTube videos that you would hate. <laughs> I had a student that built something that would randomly remind you on your phone to breathe out. Just remember to breathe out. As sort of like a mindful yeah, exercise. Yeah. And, they're, and they're fun. And they're, and, but I also found that I didn't have enough of a setup to get them to do that well. Uh, they weren't doing them particularly well. It was taking a lot of my time. And then I realized, okay, I can't run them this way. This is fun, but it can't continue this way. So if I want to do this, then I'm actually going to have to take a break from this for a little while, figure out an infrastructure where they can come in and what do they need to read, how do they need to do things, how do they need to organize. So it's all a little bit more structured um, rather than just these exploratory little projects so that it doesn't take as much time for me as it was taking. And normally I would just continue because, oh my God, these students are so interested. But suddenly I said, okay, no, no more, no more for a while. I can't, I can't take any more. I will come back to this and student will continue being interested in this, I think. The name is fun. Yeah. But, oh, I, used to, I can't do it this way. I, I actually need to, I need to do this differently. I need to be much more systematic, much more careful about how much time I, I put into this. So this is a new you. That is. And it feels sometimes like, wait, but this is kind of working. The students are showing up. What if I stop and they won't show up? But on the other hand, I'm like, no, actually, no. No, this is not working. Mm -hmm. It's not working for me. And it's in the same way not working for them. Yeah. Do you have a deliberate practice of sitting down? You, you, this, is, this is a highly reflective process that you you're talking about both in, in trying to detect the patterns about what are you enjoying doing that you find generative that you want to do more of and, and things that you might want to do less of. Um, so it's, it's highly reflective. Do you have any particular practices to support that? Like do you sit down with a piece of paper and for 10 minutes or is it just a mindset? Some of it is a mindset but some of it is just silly things like um, I have a, so one of my colleagues recommended toggle track as one of these little toggle things mm -hmm. because we always complain that we work all the time and I wanted to figure out do I actually work all the time what do I do how do I do it and I have this I, I run it as a little desktop thing where it actually sort of tracks what I which mm. I use and I can sort of put in uh, oh well this I was working on Kai, or this I was working on this project, or this I was teaching, this I was... 
And, and then I can sort of track time used for things. And I tracked for a few months. Not for like, how many hours am I working? Am I working enough? I noticed that actually immediately. Immediately I was, I suddenly was like, well, I worked 47 hours this week. And I was like, oh my God, no, really? Are we back to that? <laughs> but then I realized that it's not about the number of hours I was working in total. It was about actually, it gave me suddenly a much more visceral overview of how much time things actually take. Mm-hmm. And once you realize that, you begin to understand that when you say yes to things, it comes with specific amounts of time. And remember, time's not stretchy, really not stretchy. So when you are committing to things that in fact will take 40 hours in that week, you will end up working 60 because there's 20 hours of that other stuff that will come up that will just need to be attended to, done, responded to immediately. And unless you are clear with yourself of what, of what you're doing, but figuring out how much time things take is extremely difficult. Mm. So I said, okay, I'm going to spend so the last like four months I've been tracking. And I've been tracking in a way where because there's been Kai and there's been all these other events and so things are, so that I can get a much better sense of just how much time am I spending on all of this. And it allows me, again, it gives me a sense of saying no. When do I say yes and when do I say no? It gives me a better expectation of how much time am I committing to. This is why I know my fall is going to be mm-hmm. very difficult, because mm-hmm. I know how much time I've committed to. And it also actually gives me a sense of certainty about what to expect which I'd never really had before. So before you would just say, you'll say, would you do this? Yeah, I'll do that. Okay, I'll do that. Oh, my June seems a little bit looser. I'll do that then. And then you realize you've overcommitted. Mm. So how do you not overcommit? Mm. Oh, I really need to figure out what I want to do, but how? need to know about how much time things take. You need to think about where you want to go. You need to figure out why it's so hard to say no to some things and not others. And you need to figure out whether that is something you need to rethink or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are our commitments? Are those commitments the ones we actually want to uphold? Or do we want to rethink them? My God, that takes a lot of time and effort. And actually, I needed to give myself time to do all that thinking too. That doesn't come right away. Mm. Do you mean the time or the ability to do that? The ability to do that thinking and the space and time to do that thinking, mm. right? The ability is at a certain point, you actually have to learn how to reflect and be like, is that okay? And at first it takes a long time to figure that out. And then it's less because mm. you've gained the skill. Reflection is also a skill. Yes. And we're super reflective, but reflecting on ourselves is a completely yes. different skill, which is funny. You would never expect that. You would think a scholar that's done deep qualitative work and quantitative work and have written things about all kinds of stuff would know how to reflect. And then thinking about your own life, you're just 
realize that it's a completely different skill and you still have to learn about that. But somehow, because it's just you, it doesn't seem like you never ever have enough time for it. Mm. But it's okay to prioritize you. It turns out if you prioritize you, at least occasionally, everybody else benefits too. Yeah. I think that's a really key point, isn't it? And it turns out if you don't prioritize you, eventually everybody loses because you break. Yeah. So that's more selfish in a way. Yeah. It is. Because for a while before you break, you're going to be producing things that are never going to be your best work. And you're never going to be like, that was really good. Because I could have done better, but I didn't really have a brain then. And that's worse. Mm. So there's another thing, though, is that I think one thing I'm trying to correct right now and figure out how to deal with is that I still overcommit. It's just a knee-jerk reaction. I just overcommit mm. to things. I need to stop overcommitting. But I also need to figure out how to not appear to everyone like I'm incredibly busy. I am, but I think it's become kind of like a pathology where people are starting to write to me. I know you're incredibly busy, but... Say so more about that. that. What do you mean by appearing to be busy? I think busyness is something that to me it's becoming at least in my case if i begin to appear really busy to everybody it means i've completely overcommitted okay so it's more that if people are reading you as being busy then oops then i'm definitely yeah so if i start getting email on people and saying i know you're incredibly busy but like oh I think I'm overdoing things. I need to pull back. Mm -hmm. So using their observation of you as, as another source of feedback. Because I suddenly realized that I don't like appearing incredibly intensely busy all the time to people and I don't, I hope that I don't. But I think when we get stressed out, we get overcommitted. Mm -hmm. We stop having enough space and time to just have a coffee with a colleague. To step in and say hello. We just rush past and we appear busy to everybody because we don't have time to breathe. And connect. I mean, the two things that you just said there about coffee with a colleague, stopping in to say hello, are about, is about time to connect. And, and then you realize that suddenly, I realize at least, that suddenly I am making a choice between either having a coffee with a colleague or doing something for myself. Like, that is a wrong calculus. I should have time for both. Mm. I've overcommitted. And so right now, I think I'm going through this process of trying to figure out how much commitment is okay and mm. is enough. And that's a really, it's a process. Yeah. Are you still getting help, like still seeing a therapist or someone just to sense check this with? Yeah, I am. And I realized because apparently I need an external opinion. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, because I think that we all do in a way. Not I need somebody way, to tell me that, you know, I am. I am. And I'm also keenly aware that I'm not fully recovered. It takes years to recover from the level of burnout that I had. And I have to be very careful because that was bad. Mm-hmm. And, but that was bad because I have the tendency to overcommit, to get overexcited, to decide that I want to do everything and be everything and participate in these public events and write papers with all of my students and needing to create a new course and do this all at the same time because it all seems important, it all seems valuable and it is. It is. It is, but in the end there's only one of me. And with all of this valuable stuff, I forget, I also need time to go for a bike ride, to go to a yoga class, to actually take time and go for a walk in the forest and not think about work. Maybe go watch a movie. And not feel guilty about it. Mm. And it's like, one of my friends said, you know, rest is only restful if you're not feeling guilty about resting. Because if you're feeling guilty about resting, your nervous system is not resting. Mm. It's freaking out. And then it's not rest at all. And I think in academia we'd feel guilty about not working when we're doing anything other than working a lot. And that just makes things worse. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like that's a journey as well. In learning that it's okay to rest. Genuinely rest. Not just okay, it's imperative. It's crucial, and if you don't... So you talked about some practices like yoga and bike riding and going for a walk in the forest. Are you able to build them in in a structured way? Or how do you manage other aspects of your life beyond work now? So I've realised... Actually, I read Haruki Murakami's What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, which is a lovely book. It's a bit of a memoir. And he says something in that book. You know, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. I quite like that. Mm. And he also says something in that book that once you commit to something, you're cutting out other things in your life. Again, so if I want to, if I realize I can't just do my job, which involves reading and writing and thinking and engaging with people and giving talks and doing all of that all the time. That's not good for me. I need other things. That means I have to create space for that. If I want to seriously ride my bike and get good at that, there's only so many other things I can fit. Maybe that's also my social activity. Maybe I will prioritize this over other things. I think, so now I'm very careful about it. Okay. 
I will protect times in my day and in my week where I will do the things that are other than work because they are important too. I will block them out on my calendar so that nobody can schedule anything in those days and in those times. And it doesn't matter what else is happening. Mm -hmm. Non-negotiables. They're non-negotiables. They have to be there. Because otherwise, it's really easy to give that up. And I have a family, and I have things I want to do outside of work, and I have lots of things I want to do at work, and there's only one of me, and I have to be careful about it. Yeah. It only took me a few decades to figure it out. <laughs> it seemed like an obvious thing, though. And it's a lifelong, it is a lifelong learning, isn't it, to continually negotiate those trade-offs about what you're saying yes and no to. It's always about how do you keep balance, mm. I think. But it's also recognizing that over time you will need different things. And you will need different amounts of work or time with your family or doing something physical or going for walks or spending time with friends. It will change. And that's okay too. Mm. You just need to recognize that those changes are necessary. Again, it's that space to step back and to give you give yourself time to reflect in order to recognize as well. It's it's all part and parcel of it. Yeah. I think it's also a process of recognizing your limits and being okay with them. Mm. Right? I have colleagues that are incredibly good, that they every Monday they sit down, they write down all of their tasks for the week and then they go through and systematically go through it. And I think it's amazing. I cannot do that. That is just not something that mm -hmm. I that works for me, that mm -hmm. I think. I am fairly disorganized, I'm lots of last minute, I have many limits. I have many shortcomings. But as long as I recognize that they're there and I build a few things that kind of mitigate some, yeah. some of them, it's okay. And my colleagues come to me and say, you know, like, you'll be organizing a winter school in Copenhagen for the decode project, which we will do in, in, in January. And I realize organizing is not my strong suit. So my solution to this is I need to hire somebody to do that for very nice. Because clearly, it's not going to be me, because if I try to do it, it will take me enormous amounts yeah. of time. It will stress me out, and I am terrible at it. And I know. And so, instead of trying to do it myself, I'm going to try and figure out how I'm going to accomplish this without making it the thing that breaks me. Lovely. Recognizing that is key. Yeah. That, and that self-awareness about it's not my strength. Also, the, the, the self-awareness that someone else can be very good and structured at organising their to-do lists at the beginning of the week, but that's not you. And that's okay. Like you're, It's not that you're not measuring up to their standards. You're just different. Yeah. Yeah. And it takes a while to figure that out. Mm. It takes a while to figure out all of our brains are different. 
and they all function differently and they all need slightly different things and it works for one person will not work for another person and sometimes when we're stressed and we're tired we can get upset at each other why can't you just do it this way it makes sense well maybe it makes sense for you yeah I could keep talking forever because I just think there's so much to explore here. Just two things, if we can. Sure. One is you're talking about all the work that you're doing and necessarily needing to do for yourself, both to get yourself back on the path and to try to develop practices and habits and, and whatever that are more sustainable for you for the long term. And you're operating within a broader cultural context. And it sounds like you've just had amazingly supportive colleagues and department, which is really to be commended, you know, good on all of them. More generally, structurally, what are the things that you think maybe contributed to and could be changed to stop this happening for other people or that it may have helped you in another universe? <laughs> I mean, I live in Denmark, which means I live in a country where there has been enormous attention to workplace stress and the very idea that people need support through workplace stress and that is something that is an issue has been around for quite a while. Mm -hmm. I also live in a place where the idea of work-life balance is important, although nobody's ever quite really sure how you're supposed to achieve mm -hmm. it. Um, but I live in a place where if my kid gets sick and I have a bunch of meetings where even I'm teaching a course and I say my kid is sick and everybody's like, that's fine. Do what's important. And that's the fact that your kid is sick, that's important. Not the meetings, not the class, everything else which is incredibly unusual. I come from the US, it took me years to just actually even take any of that on board. To accept that this kind of way of treating people is possible. Where my doctor says, Yes, you should go on sick leave. And I say, do I need something to show my employer? And he says, no. If they want me, if they want something from me, they can call me. And they have to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> I told you to go on sick leave. You just tell them I told you to go on sick leave. And go on sick leave. <laughs> and my employer says, of course, you should go on sick leave. And here, we'll have a meeting at this time when we decide how slowly you're going mm -hmm. to come back. Mm. Please don't go back too quickly. So I am so lucky in this incredibly supportive you know, environment and with the structures in place. So is that saying that a lot of the pressures were coming from within? Because you did talk about the things that you get excited about. It, I think a lot of the pressure comes from within. A lot of the pressure also comes from the fact that I've been socialized and in the US where yeah. this kind of set of expectations is completely different. And so when you are treated like a valuable human being at your workplace, it's sometimes initially shocking. And that's horrible in the first place, right? Um, 
I think I think there is something about the feeling here in Denmark that I'm entitled to this. Mm-hmm. And everybody's accepted that. That's how it is. That then takes the pressure off. That when this happens, it's not somehow my fault that I have to then somehow atone for. That this is just life. Yeah. And things will go the way they go. And I think all of that is really important. Yeah. And as it is, we I don't know, I, I find that most academics I know are incredibly self driven. And do crazy things like all right, I think I'm just going to pull an all-nighter and write this grant proposal. We'll do that occasionally, even though sometimes we feel like we should know better. <laughs> and so I think in many ways it can be easy to fall into this sense of like pushing yourself more mm. and more and more mm. and more. <laughs> At the very least, I had the infrastructures around me to be like, no, actually, it's okay if you don't. So when you did fall down, you had support net, you had some safety nets and... and not only that, that safety net did mm. not expect me to get up and start running again. Mm. They expect me to start by walking slowly. And then they always, they keep saying things like, are you sure about this? Because there's this acceptance of like, you do enough. And yes, of course, there's huge pressure to get funding, there's pressure to, to publish, you need to do things here and there. And yet, at the same time, there is an understanding of what's enough and how to provide you support to do enough. Mm. It's such an important word, isn't it? Enough. I just had a conversation with someone who uh, was at a course I ran for early career researchers where we talked about saying yes, no, and also making those choices about how to do more of the things that are generative, that are fun, or that we feel like you can make a difference, or that are important. And we talked about, you know, like for the, some of the other things, good enough. And the fight that people have in their heads that good enough sounds like it's sloppy or a compromise, but it's not. It's enough. You do enough. I love that people say that to you. That's just so affirming. And I think we're used to pushing harder and comparing ourselves to others. Yeah. And it's, we are in a business where we're constantly compared to others. So nothing's ever enough. It needs to be top. It needs to be perfect. It needs to be best. If you're comparing to others. Because you're always compared to others. How do you win a grant? Because you're best. Yeah. How do you, like, right? Everything is that. So no wonder, no wonder you constantly push yourself because you have to be better, more, whatever. And at some point you need to figure out how much is enough. Mm. Because if you don't, how are you going to continue? It's not sustainable. As it is, if you look at it, what was enough 
just two decades ago in academia is not nearly enough now. So that's something we need to change because we can't keep escalating this forever. That's not sustainable. Well, we're all operating within a space where the amount of funding is shrinking. Mm. Um, the competitiveness of our grants is increasing. Um, at this point, for some grants, the funding rates are so low that it's practically random. And yet, when you do get funded, people think, oh, because you're the best. Mm. Well, you're good. Yeah. <laughs> and you got lucky. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's a horrible thing. Because it's, it's so intense at this point. And we really need to figure out how to change that dynamic. We need new funding models. We need new funding models. We need to figure out how to manage the neoliberal university. Mm. Um, how to acknowledge that the standards that we set are constantly going up. And if we look at ourselves and what it took then to do, what it's taking now to do, those are shifting, yeah. increasing. Um, and to critically consider what is really success and where are we going? So my last question is then how, what are the conversations like with your students around all this, knowing that they are still operating in this environment as it is now, having gone through your own experiences, how are you helping them navigate their choices? So one of the things I'm very well aware of is that my taking time off affected my students. It couldn't not. They did fine, but they would have done better if I were there. And in part, this has to do with complex projects that they're part of and the different ways that things have worked out. Um, but that's just how it is. And so each student is different, I think, and they all have different needs and they all need different ways, different forms of support. But because I'm extremely aware of how easy it is to just push, 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 I try to be very clear about what just, what is enough, what needs to be accomplished. And if you get more, that's great. Because you know, at a certain point when I was writing my PhD, I realized I'm not writing the dissertation. <laughs> I'm writing a dissertation. Because it just needs to finish. Mm. It just needs to be done. And it also means that my students all want to write the dissertation. That's normal when you're halfway through your PhD and you believe you're going to change the world. Sometimes you might. But the dissertation is a form of perfectionist that's not good for anyone. So we work very hard on a dissertation, mm -hmm. on what's enough. 
I work very hard in making sure my students have options. I talk to them about where it is that they want to go, what they want to do, and we talk about what needs to be in place for them to have yeah. those options. Yeah. And now I'm going to start trying to get funding so I can offer them some postdocs because three-year PhDs are brutal. But given that, then the question is what's enough? If I have a student that says, you know, I think this is fantastic and I love doing a PhD, but after that I'm going to industry because I can't deal with academia. Okay. What industry? Mm-hmm. Do we need an internship? Mm-hmm. Yep. Do we need to figure out who do we need to talk to? I have a student that really wants to stay in academia and this is where she wants to be and this is this is her thing. Okay. Where do we need to publish? Which audiences do you need to talk to? How do we set you up to read, to be read by those audiences in a way that can begin to make you that kind of scholar? And what's enough? So that's being strategic. You said before about being strategic, what does that mean? That's certainly lovely strategic thinking, shaping choices that the students can be making now. When you have a three-year PhD, Mm. if you don't make those choices, Mm. I think it's just irresponsible. You don't have time to change change your mind. And sometimes students do, but then it's very, very difficult to switch. Mm. Yes. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you'd just like to add? Or any any final thoughts (laughs) or reflections? I'm always at odds with the academic career. On the one hand, I think it's brilliant. You get to think about things and read because it's kind of amazing. That's part of our job. And write and argue and have amazing conversations with incredibly smart people. And we travel a lot and we know people all over the world and it's amazing. But there's some days where I just want a job where I can just do the job and go home and not think about it. And I realized that sometimes I just have to do that. Sometimes I have to treat my academic career as a job for a little while. And that's okay too. Yeah. That's definitely okay. (laughs) Wow. Thank you for letting me talk about all of this. Thank you for being vulnerable enough to share I can imagine it will help a lot of people just go, ah, it's okay, that they're okay that they may be feeling this, or that they're okay that they might just need to say, I can't do it anymore for the moment, and just step back. I would not have been able to go through that quite as well as I did if I didn't have a conversation with Pernilla Verne about it, Mm. which she said, I fell and they caught me. Try it. It's okay. I would not have been able to do it without that. As I was giving you permission just to be human. When I walked into Casper's office and he said, okay, and the next week I wasn't teaching anymore, I was in shock. I was in complete and utter shock that that was possible. 
that people would be supportive. That, that, that he would do that, mm -hmm. and it was possible to do, and it would just happen like that. Mm. And may we all do that for each other. Just being there, reassuring and saying that it's okay. So all the very best navigating your fall <laughs> and making ongoing choices that prioritise you so that you can bring your wonderful best self to making the difference you want to make in the research that you're doing in the work. So thank you. Irina. Thank you for letting me have this for being part of your project too. I've been listening to them a lot. And so it's kind of amazing to be part of it. I'm really glad you are. Thank you. <laughs> so, thank you. What a compelling story. I'm so grateful to Irina for her vulnerability and honesty in sharing with us. It's a salient reminder that if we want to be here in the longer term, doing great work, we need to be much more reflective about the pressures we might be putting ourselves under and make sure that we look after ourselves now. And this can involve often making wise and hard choices. It's also a salient reminder that burnout doesn't happen in a vacuum. What we do at faculty, department, group level matters for how we support one another and how we talk about these sorts of issues. And of course, there are also the bigger structural issues, especially around our performance-based academic cultures that need to change if we are to better support well-being at scale. So take care, take a break, and remember you are enough, you do enough, and it is good enough. You can find the summary notes, a transcript and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes, Spotify and Google Podcasts. And you can follow Change Acad Life on Twitter. And I'm really hoping that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. And you can contribute to this by rating the podcast and also giving feedback and if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues. Together, we can make change happen.